Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of our healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. In this episode of the show, we speak to Precious Ramasodi about depression and mood disorders from a clinical psychologist's perspective. Precious Ramasodi, uh, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about depression and mood disorders from a clinical psychologist's perspective. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Oliver. Um, always a pleasure. And um, yeah, so glad to have eventually caught up with you. And we tried to reach, you know, schedule a few times, but yeah, so glad that we're doing this. And talking about, you know, something that's that's very prevalent right now, it seems, and, and we can go in so many different, you know, directions in terms of this, in terms of COVID and stress and world and all of those kind of things. But uh, can you tell us in your words, wh- what is depression? And then maybe as a follow up, what is a mood disorder? All right. Um, so the best way to sort of explain it um, in, in a clear way is, So as human beings, we experience a variety of different emotions. We can feel sad, um, excited, surprised, resentment, anger. um, And these all sort of we can graphically think of a cycle. The the more positive emotions or affects uh, would be the top of the cycle. And then going down would be sadness, emptiness, depression sort of right at the bottom. Although we we sort of, um, as you're saying, in, in, in it's quite mainstream. Um, people use the word depression often, um, but clinically, when we speak of depression, we're looking at how a person, their behavior and their subjective experience over a two-week period. So over two weeks, if a person has been feeling really down, uh, possibly feeling hopeless or helpless, um, They may have changes in their appetite or sleeping patterns. Um, They may be um, just interested in a lot of stuff. They may have an inability to experience pleasure. So we look at specific symptoms within a two-week period, um, and that will qualify a person as having a depressive episode. Yeah. Um, Sorry, mm-hmm. Precious. And, and I was going to say, and the follow-up to that is the, the mood disorders. And the only reason I'm asking that is there a, a link between those two topics? Yes. Yeah. So there is. So there is. So uh, depression falls into, so it's now separated in the DSM. There's um, depressive disorders are in one category, and then you'll have your bipolar disorders in, in a different category it, clinically. They're, they're separated in, in terms of um, what they are and what you're looking for. But again, with that spectrum and that range, it's all affecting mood. They're all mood illnesses, right? Um, other illnesses in the mood range would be uh, bipolar. There's two different types of that. There's cyclothymia. We have dysthymia. Um, you could have seasonal affective disorder. So there's a whole lot of mood problems a person can have. Um, and depression is one which is, which is well known. And bipolar, I think, also at the other extreme is also quite well known. But there's a whole lot of others in between. 
Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think, you know, although I mentioned it's it's probably more mainstream now, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what exactly is depression. So if someone is just feeling, you know, down maybe for that day, you know, people say, oh, are you depressed? And it has become like, you know, like a vocabulary thing now. But obviously, as you pointed out, you know, it has to be uh, symptoms within a two week period from what I understand. And it obviously must be a little bit more severe. So I think um, I think that's clear to note. And um, yeah, the mood disorders as well. I think, uh, you know, what's interesting for me is that I think everyone goes through those fluctuations of mood. But, you know, when does it become a disorder, I think is a key one. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll understand as we go along as well. Um, is, do, you, do you have any thoughts as to whether this is becoming a lot more... Um, I would say a lot more, a lot more people are getting depressed now, or is it just that we uncovering it and it always was there for us as a society? Um, I'd say maybe a bit of both. Um, maybe there's a lot more awareness now of um, around mental health and around conditions like depression or anxiety or adjustment. People are a lot more informed about what these disorders are. Um, so they can now identify when they're experiencing it themselves. Um, and then also just, I'd say, our lifestyles, our lifestyles and the range of things we get exposed to, which um, which, which could lead to uh, an issue with, with mood or functioning um, and result in a person becoming depressed. Okay. Yeah, so it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um... It's always an interesting one for me when people say that and, and you know, obviously, you know, we, we, we say it very normally as well, but life is so stressful all the time and, you know, depending on where you are and, and there's so many external stresses as well uh, that you have to contend with that it's so difficult that you almost, you know, I'm picturing in my head like a little cocoon, you know, like you almost like need to build this cocoon around you to make sure that you don't get stressed out all the time. Um and I'm probably jumping a few stages, but do you, have you found any strategies that actually work really well, you know, for for people with depression, or in or are prone to depression? Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be a variety of things that there are a variety of things that assist. So there's medication that assists and therapy assists. Um, having really good support, right? So social support. Um, so the system of people around you, the network of people around you. Um, if you do have close interpersonal relationships, that often is a buffer, a really good buffer for people who are um, who are dealing with depressive symptoms, right? Um, because if you think of therapy, what we really are doing is providing a space for a person to express themselves um, without fear of being judged, without any sort of um, condition to how they need to do it. There's no pressure to get it done quickly or to to heal quickly or recover quickly. There's no right thing that you have to say when you're in therapy, right? So it's a human being offering a safe space for them to explore and understand the impact of what they've gone through. You can get that from a friend, right? Of course, they won't know, they won't always know the right thing to say. They won't always be able to emotionally hold um, the weight of what you're going through. But if you have good 
a good system of friends and family around you, um, that often is a really good way to, yeah, that, that's a really good buffer for people who may be experiencing all sorts of stress, work stress, family stress, home life, whatever it might be, financial stress. Um, if you have adequate support around you, um, we, we get through a lot of things that way. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, I mean, uh, strong, you know, strong values, strong, you know, personal relationships, strong, um, yeah, I think all of that definitely helps. Um, and I mean, so dialing it back a little bit um, in terms of, of symptoms and signs that uh, someone is, is getting to that depression stage or is already in that depression stage. Can you outline this for us? Right, sure. So um, what we look at is, person, to meet the criteria for an episode, you should have at least five of the following. Right? So there's a whole list. Um, subjective feeling of being empty or hopeless, feeling sad. It might be objectively observable by someone else that you just seem a little bit down or it's hard to engage the person or they just seem a little bit... Um, yeah, they, they might be lacking energy. Um, so it might be observed by others or they may describe feeling that way. Um, an inability to experience pleasure. So we call that anhedonia. Um, when you're just stressed and you, to relieve that stress, you take a nap, get a bit of a rest or speak to a friend or listen to your favorite music or watch a show you enjoy or get outside. And that usually is able to reduce the stress that you're that you're experiencing when a person is depressed those um activities stop becoming pleasurable right so they find it's hard to find enjoyment out of your favorite meal um being outside um you get rest but you still feel tired right so that's that's also a clinical uh, symptom that you look for anhedonia um diminished interest in doing a lot of things a lack of energy change in weight, so either gaining a lot of weight, five, more than 5% of your body weight within a month, or losing 5% of your body weight within a month, and that's not due to a diet. Um, what else? There's cognitive symptoms that you could experience, um, so being forgetful, um, poor concentration, um, indecisiveness, um, a feeling of worthlessness and guilt. So often with people who are depressed, um, so you can feel bad about something which has happened, whatever it might be. Maybe something's happened with um, a friend or something that you're pondering that you're um, sort of grappling with, right? But a person that's depressed will have excessive guilt and they'll almost blame themselves um, to a level that's irrational for the things that are happening around them. So if they hear that there was an accident on wherever, on a route that they usually drive on, they'll think maybe it's me. Maybe it's because I was on that, I drove that route that day. Um, or maybe I spoke to that person and I brought that on them, right? So they will have this almost irrational self-blame um, and attribute, attribute a lot of negative events to themselves. Um, they may also, what else? Thinking about death a whole lot, thinking about suicide. Um, yeah, so those are the symptoms we'd expect to see. Five or more of those 
over a two-week period, together with, coupled with, an inability to function socially and occupationally. So once it starts to impair functioning, then it also is an indication that it's a depressive episode. Okay. You use that term, uh, uh, I mean, thanks so much for outlining that, but you use that term, uh, I think, at least uh, a few times now, depressive episode. And um, is that, I mean, is there a certain stigma associated with that? I mean, if you told someone, you know, you, and I'm thinking more in terms of the workplace as well, uh, maybe even in the school kind of setting, but a depressive episode in my mind is like something really bad. Is it like... Is it like a normal thing to go through that or, or is that quite like the end game? You know, is it, is it like, you know, someone's, you know, once they've been through that, it's, it's the first of many. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Oliver, I'd say there probably is still a bit of stigma around it. Although mental health conversations and awareness is, has grown a whole lot. Um, I think there is still a bit of stigma around having depression it might be slightly different according to to age and this is just sort of i'm sort of i'm speaking from personal experience and sort of um stories i've heard from others about with with within the adolescent age group um it might be a little bit more um it's viewed differently it's not as big of a problem it might be a little bit more um popular or fashionable to have symptoms of anxiety amongst teenagers and adolescents or, um, or symptoms of depression. But I think for the most part, there still is quite a bit of stigma around depression. At the same time, it is quite common. Um, it is actually the most common psychiatric illness. Um, about 5 to 17% is, is the prevalence. Um, I think a lot of people experience depressive symptoms or a depressive episode without recognizing it, and it resolves on its own without professional assistance. So um, something might happen in their lives. Maybe they lose a loved one. Maybe um, an issue maybe at work or losing work, a financial strain, um, any sort of interpersonal problem. And it causes depressive symptoms as a result of that adverse event. They're not a person might not always recognize that, and the, but the symptoms resolve on their own with time. Maybe I think mm-hmm. the, the there's a percentage of around um, if it's treated, depression will usually last around three months. If it's untreated, it could last around six to thirteen months untreated yeah okay that's really good to know i mean i i think we covered um you know some of this in some you know like in in not as much detail but you know we did cover a few but i I think that's the first time i've heard that you know the three months and the six months and and as you were talking i was thinking as well because uh you know i was going to ask you you know my next you know uh soon was the triggers because there's so many triggers i mean if someone is going through I mean, losing a loved one, uh, losing a child. I mean, we were speaking recently, um, you know, to a speech therapist, you know, around palliative care and losing a, a child is like, you know, quite traumatic. I mean, I can't see someone just brushing that off and being, you know, okay, yeah, this is, I'm kind of over that now. You know, that has to cause, you know, issues mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. 
But I'm so glad you mentioned that, like how you did in terms of people go through it and they probably don't know that they're going through it. And you probably, you know, like I, I've definitely seen people go through it, but I, you know, I don't think that they've ever mentioned depression as well. But it's definitely over some time that they're in the grieving process or they're really down or something like that. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And if I can touch on the triggers, do you find that there's common triggers with this? And um, at some point in the conversation, I'm going to bring up anxiety as well and see if people are more mm -hmm. prone, you know, to depression if there's some level of anxiety. But um, I can't not ask the question as well around COVID <laughs> because I think we're still in that COVID hangover kind of stage, it seems. But have you found more of a prevalence over the last few years, firstly? And secondly, do you find that there's common triggers, you know, like losing a job, um, grief, you know, losing some a loved one? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 what you've mentioned, the examples you've mentioned are definite um, potential triggers to a depressive episode. Um, there's actually a scale. Um, Called the stressful life event scale, and it, it has a whole list of a whole list, sorry, of um, different things that could potentially cause um, just a high level of stress for a person, whether and cause anxiety or depression, moving houses, changing jobs, um, loss of a loved one, loss of a pet, um, financial strain, so all sorts of different life events, right? But I think all, what happens is we just we maybe we we may go through life and just think this is normal you you can everybody goes through something and you're supposed to just carry on and continue um and it should not require um any assistance it should not require um a com much conversation or attention from people i think we all sort of have a or people generally tend to have a um a tough approach to their to themselves, right? And can be hard on themselves. That like we should all just cope and continue. That's what life is about. Um, but it's okay to not be okay. Um, I know that sort of said a whole lot. Um, and that that phrase is is often heard by a lot of people. But what it means is there there are global events or events which globally, right, for any person around the world can lead to a lot of pain, right? So whether you are um, an elderly person, um, a young adult, whatever stage of life that you're at, it's recognized that losing a loved one can have a severe and profound impact on how you view the world, right? And how you feel. So it's okay to mourn and experience those symptoms. If if the grief becomes a bit more com a bit more um, complicated and there's um, it becomes um, um, it, yeah there's there's a depressive there's a person is in um, um, intense mourning and there's a depressive quality to it and it's not just the grief that resolves. Um, without any assistance right if a person is going through something like that it's okay to say this is incredibly hard I've lost um, my partner my child there's no replacement for that person you'll have tons of support but it's still such a huge gaping space in your heart um, and your life actually changes after you lose a loved one um, life is never really the same it's never really the same 
Um, you can, even after a person has processed their grief, they're actually relearning how to do life again without your spouse there, your child there, your parent there. This very significant person that's always been there up until that point, right? So we go through really difficult things. And I think we sometimes have the approach that we just have to go through them and get on with it. But it's okay to sit and say, hey, this is one of the hardest things any person, no matter what cultural background you're coming from, no matter the age, this is one of the hardest things that any person can go through. And it's okay to take time to um, attend to, to yourself, take care of yourself before just continuing with everything else. Yeah. Mm, I like that. I mean, I like how you said that. And I like how you said, you know, culturally as well, because I think, you know, I think if we go into the culture part, you know, different cultures have different ways of dealing with that. And, um, but you know, what, what I really like about what you said, and uh, I just want to understand it just one more level as well, is that I think and this is the most obvious thing for me, because people always say, you know, you need to take care of yourself. I think for the large part, most of us don't know how to do that. We don't know how to prioritize ourselves. And can you tell us what that would mean? I know it sounds like the, I mean, it sounds like the simplest question, but what is prioritizing yourself? What is, what is like giving yourself the time to, to heal, you know, actually mean for people? Because I think that's the part that they don't understand, you know, because most of us just get back onto the wagon wheel and we just do it again. You know, that for us is normal. Um, so, all right. So I think there's a lot of, um, talk about self-care and, um, yeah, again, with, with all of the, the greater awareness around mental health and the importance of looking after ourselves, I think people have a general understanding of it, but what we're essentially saying is self-care entails, um, prioritizing yourself is treating yourself as you would another person, right? Treating yourself as you would anybody else. And that rest is not something that comes after work has been done, that it's earned or that you labor in order to deserve a break, right? It's it's part of your being able to have the resources to, um, to keep giving, right? So you have to pour into yourself before you can give into others. Um, it also is, I'd say it's also treating yourself sensitively, like with the level of sensitivity and care, right? It's taking yourself seriously. If you're tired, it's an indication that maybe you are doing too much. Maybe you do need to just take one thing off the plate. If you're overwhelmed by a situation, maybe it's an indication someone else should assist or take over or whatever it might be, but actually taking your experience seriously. How do I feel about what's happening with this person or the situation or this um, aspect of my life? How do I feel about it? Let me um, honor that. Let me actually take my experience and feelings seriously. Yeah, so prioritizing yourself, self-care is actually about just valuing yourself more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you you painted a really good picture for us. I think in terms of that, I mean, you know, almost like imagine that persona of yourself and, you know, almost like taking care of that. I think most of us don't take that that step back, you know, to firstly to say I'm the most important person, 
because if I'm not there, you know, everything else doesn't happen. Um, and then secondly, like, you know, how do you, and, and I think most people don't listen to themselves. I don't know. It's, you know, you get caught up, especially as, uh, you know, I think if you're a parent, it's even worse, but you get caught up with so many different things that you need to do. You know, you need to be this person at work. You need to be this person for your spouse, for your, for your children, all of those things. And you kind of go down that pecking order until the last thing, you know, just before you're going to bed. And I think it's probably the worst, the, not the time you want to be, be doing self-care, I think. Um, so I think we know what needs to be done sometimes, or the body is telling us, or our mind is telling us, but we probably don't listen um, until it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. We stretch ourselves as much as possible because there's there's so many different roles and responsibilities you have to take care of. Taking a day off feel, starts to feel like you're being self-indulgent or um, taking time away from family feels selfish or that you aren't caring enough for them. When actually, in order to be fully present with them, you have to be okay. So it's all right to do that. It's all right to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My brother uh, works at, you know, one of the, the, the leading banks in South Africa and um, he has like he has quite a stressful job. And I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, term. I, I'm going to get the term wrong. I, I should have should have remembered it. But it's, it's 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 essentially, you know, most people take their, you know, take their leave or, you know, they retire right at the end of their lives uh, or, you know, like obviously at 60 or 65 or something, uh, maybe mm-hmm. 55. But there's this movement where they say maybe you should be taking the you know your retirement time before that so you almost like save up you know for five years you take a full year off and then you go back into the job market and you know and and that's what he did recently and i thought it was actually amazing you know seeing him do that you know we call he called it a sabbatical but it was actually amazing you know so and because most of us you know we save 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 on this elusive time that at 65, you're going to retire and do that. But it's actually nice to take that break in between your career as well. And I thought, um, have you heard people doing that? Uh, I'm, I'm hearing of it for the first time. Really? Okay. Yeah. It sounds like a lovely thing to do. It hmm. sounds like a really worthwhile thing to do, um, to take a break, especially if, if work is um, demands a lot from you and requires a lot from you. Um, taking a taking a sabbatical just to enjoy life and enjoy what you've been working so hard for, um, and deepen relationships, right? Deepen relationships. Spend more time with family. Spend more time with with children, um, friends. Yeah, I'd, I'd 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 say that's a very good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, and to the point mm-hmm. where you know, like you can even take it off your pension fund. You know, obviously, if you're that. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're in that scenario, but it makes more sense to do that now, you know, when you can. But I think what it also gives you is, is it gives you this, this hope that, you know, you work flat out for five years and, you know, you do that. And obviously while there, you're trying to take care of yourself, but at least you're giving yourself that space that, and it doesn't have to be a year. I mean, it could be three months, it could be six months, whatever that is, but like a short mini vacation kind of thing, you know, before mini retirement, before you hit the, you know, the wagon wheel again. I thought it was, was pretty amazing. Yeah, I think that's really good because I think, um, as you're saying, with, with just the continual um, routine of life, the routine routine of going to work, coming home, um, you get your leave and you get your holidays, um, but things can start to feel a little bit dull after a while. They can start to feel a little bit um, 
there's just less enjoyment that you're getting out of it. So if there is a way that you could um, organize things in such a way that you do have six months of a sabbatical or a whole year of a sabbatical, I would absolutely encourage people to do that. I think that's um, refreshing and, yeah, and helpful in a big way. You approach life again with a renewed perspective and re-energized almost, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. He was fortunate enough to go back to the same bank, uh, you know, and and get, but in a different role. But again, you know, it was really like refreshing because you need know, to go on, you need know, to go on a new role now, so it's almost like a new challenge and and stuff like that. But I, I thought it was a really nice way, you know, almost yeah. like being in control of your life and not letting, you know, the work dictate to you or the circumstances dictate to you of what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Uh, very cool. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. I think a lot of us just sort of go through life without thinking of what we actually would like, what would actually make us happy. Um, it becomes so much of a, you know, there's big things that you work towards, like um, buying your buying a house or paying off your your, your debts and getting your kids through school. There's all these big goals that people work towards. Um, and then the enjoyment of it gets lost as you're trying to achieve that. Mm. It's hard to enjoy the things that you're working for. Um, mm. yeah. yeah. There's a really um psychiatrist. Sorry, you know the the story you shared about your um relative just made me think of a psychiatrist. Um, his name is uh, Ivan Yolam. And he's done a lot of work with um, group therapy and just written a whole lot about uh, humanistic therapy and existential therapy. Um, and what he would often do is he and his wife were both academics, but he would take sabbaticals to all sorts of lovely locations, tropical islands. And that would be his time to write um, either for an academic reason or just novels. So that would be his period just to enjoy writing, right? And then find a new post at a new university, spend a few years there, leave, move to a different country. Um, so all the while developing himself um, while enjoying travel. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah. It's almost like it seems more like a fantasy now, but I, I think, you know, speaking about the benefits of COVID, I think it's made the world so much more smaller, even this conversation that we're having now. I think pre-COVID, I would have struggled to to connect with, you know, practitioners, uh, but, you know, we, we take for granted, you know, the fact that we can get into a Zoom room or get into a Teams meeting and it's all like, it's normal, you know, this is how we converse and, and do stuff. And I think what you just said now is is absolutely amazing with the psychiatrist. I mean, I've always had that. But but you know what makes it difficult is it's like like once you get into the, the routine of children and stuff like that, then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge, I think, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to do that. But anyway, I think it's it's possible for anyone. You just have to structure it, you know, properly. But um, so I, I think we mentioned two examples, and I think those are probably extreme. I would say, I wouldn't say extreme, but, you know, like very examples you can probably aspire to you know like to to get to i think for the rest of us we probably you know have to find other ways of maybe taking those 
those breaks or being a lot more conscious of the relaxation <laughs> relaxation part and any intentional part you know around doing mm-hmm. stuff um yeah. yeah um do you find there's a link with anxiety i mean are, are people and again i'm throwing this word out and i know that's a topic all on its own but um people that are more anxious or anxious by nature or anxious by circumstance you know like obviously change mm-hmm. of job new demanding boss might be you know creates anxiety um do you find that they're more susceptible to depression um absolutely yeah so there actually is um a lot of anxiety and depression will often be um are comorbid often occur at the same time people that will have um anxiety generally if that's not well managed it can develop into depression i'm not too sure about the the what the stats will say about just the, how um strong that that link is between the two illnesses um but there is definitely a link um and it often is anxiety that's not well managed often develops into depression um and it could be it could be more um sort of deeper there are people that are just prone to to being anxious and then at times it's more situational or um as a result of um something new that's that's happening in a person's life so um they're overwhelmed because of as you you mentioned um a new boss that's the work environment has become very demanding or um maybe there's a new baby and there's just more um more demands at home um so anxiety can be either person is sort of it's more personality right there's an anxious personality and then at times a person that hasn't struggled with depression uh, sorry with anxiety can have a anxious reaction to something that's happening in their life yeah mm yeah yeah I would love to get your thoughts on something like this as well and uh, this is more personal experience but you know you you never know what you're getting into uh, until you into it and and um, you know you mentioned new baby now I don't think many parents actually realize you know the amount of changes that are coming into their lives as this new baby hits you know like their world do, do you think there's any thoughts around that I mean a lot more like education slash a lot more awareness and and I'm I'm talking maybe I haven't seen it as yet but no one spells out the financial I mean everyone talks about okay you have to prepare yourself for buying diapers and <laughs> and purity and all of those things but but that's the I don't know I found that was the cheapest thing everything else like you know finding the right school doing this you know finding play groups or support structures mm-hmm. all of that stuff no one mentions and i just find you know it's almost like people go into these really stressful aspects and you can call them triggers and they don't even know what they're getting into and i think the way i see it as well is depression becomes and anxiety becomes the after effect of the stuff that they got into do you think there's any thought do you have any thoughts on how people can probably get prepared a little bit more for the life changing events um sure I don't know if there is a real um clear answer for that. Um I guess preparedness there's a level of preparedness that I think anybody um would want to have before um before a child arrives or before starting a new job or um moving homes or there's a level of, level of preparedness that you you 
you read up, you talk to people, you um, all that you can anticipate, you prepare yourself for that. And then there's some things that the experience itself is is the um, the learning happens in the experience, and the requiring a whole lot of information and over preparedness, and it can also be anxiety inducing as well, right? So mm. there's no, real, um, I guess, there's a level of confidence that the person's supposed to have that with the information and the research I've done, right, I've prepared a little bit for all the financial costs that come with um, a new baby and um, all the fees for um, once they start crutch and doctor's visits and all the diapers and purity, all of the costs associated with um, taking care of a little one. So they prepare themselves for that have conversations with friends and family about um, their experience and what what their, um, any other tips or hints you can get from everybody else. And then there's a level of confidence that we almost have to have. And that's where maybe that, that, um, that predisposition, that anxiety being more of an innate, has more to do with the, the person themselves and how they um, deal with, with um new situations, how they adapt to new situations, right? It might be more about the person themselves and their confidence and ability to feel capable going into that. Yeah. 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 I think you made a really strong case for obviously being not trying to be too prepared because then you almost like need to roll with it a little bit or be adaptable. And I think maybe that's where the anxiety comes in. I think people that are probably more adaptable and more, you know, maybe more um, more open to change and stuff like that, maybe they don't deal with the, you know, the anxiety in the same way as someone that's, you know, overly high strung and overly, you know, trying to prepare for every eventuality. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you said that, that is a level of anxiety in its own right. But also it's okay. I think, Oliver, another aspect is it's okay for people to make mistakes and to be, um, for that to be sort of acceptable for them and for the people around them to also embrace them as they learn and make mistakes. And um, when there are aspects that you are a bit unprepared for, that's okay. That's fine. And having people around you remind you that it's okay. We're all sort of figuring it out. We all sort of um, wished we'd saved up a little bit more before the child arrived. Or we also wish we'd um, inquired a bit more about this school versus that school. Or um, people just affirming for you that it is a trial and error experience um, helps, right? Then you realize it's, it's okay. I did the best I could with that. Actually, nobody got that right on the first try. Everybody's sort of trying to see how this works. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think, but it's also necessary to hear that. Also, if not hearing it makes you continue to think, is this okay? Am I am I floundering a bit too much through this? Or am I, um, have I not picked the best pediatrician? Have I not saved enough of a big deposit for, for this, whatever the purchase is? Um, so that internal dialogue and conversation and continual you criticizing and you trying to figure out internally 
um, and evaluating yourself internally, that's where the issue is. Having an affirming person around you say, that's actually fine. It's not perfect, but that's okay. Helps. That's where that, that's what reduces the anxiety. Um, someone else making you feel like it's safe to actually get a few things wrong. Mm. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there, Precious. I mean, I think it's almost like having the mindset that it is not going to be perfect and you have to, you know, conscious, conscious, uh, you know, constantly adjust and, um, and it's actually okay. I think almost like preparing your mind for it's actually okay, um, is probably that self love part as well, um, which you, you know, you mentioned previously. Um, so if I take it back to, um, what what would be a typical therapy process for some? I, and I know, I mean, obviously, I've done this enough now. I mean, I'm, I think most therapists would tell me, you know, obviously, it, de- it depends on the patient and stuff like that. And I'm more asking more like typically, you know, like, uh, and if there's any similarities between how you normally treat patients with depression. Absolutely. Um. So there are a whole different. Um, a lot of therapy um, modalities and different ways that you can intervene. Um, you get your CBT therapists, um, you might get a trauma-focused therapist, you might get um, um, a person-centered therapist. So all of them have their different strategies for how they want to reduce those anxiety symptoms and assist that person to feel strong again and um, have a renewed sense of meaning. Um, but how it starts with the depressed patient is first by getting full history. So in the first uh, intake session, I start by getting a bit of background about what's happening. Um, so all of these symptoms, I actually ask, are they experiencing this? So I can make sure that this is the diagnosis. Are they experiencing those physiological symptoms subjectively, um, how they're feeling? What are the big changes in their lives? Sometimes you can identify a specific thing that's causing the depression. So there's an adverse life event. um, And at other times, it's very difficult to put your finger on what's actually causing it. Um, There's no huge change at home or at work or with family, but they're just sort of feeling a bit under the weather, right? Like life is just starting to feel a little bit dull um, and they're not finding enjoyment out of being with family or friends or taking time off and it's they're struggling to just feel um to find the joy and pleasure in different things um so sometimes you can put your finger on this is what's happened and this is what's causing it and other times it's a bit vague and there's just a mild sense of restlessness or um yeah they're just not happy with anything um then what i'd like to do is explore explore a bit more, right? So how they see the world. Um, Really what every therapist is doing is trying to get into um, your inner world is what we call it, your inner emotional experience. So through Oliver's eyes, what is it like to to be at work? Um, How does he experience this colleague? Um, This project for him, is it exciting? Is it it overwhelming? Um, Is it... um, so? from your experience, what it's like to be in Oliver's shoes, understanding that, and then understanding what are the, what are all of those parts that are contributing to this depressive picture, right? Is it the, there is no huge problem at work, there was no disciplinary hearing or loss of a job, 
but just feeling like they don't fit in at work, just feeling like they don't really understand their, 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 they can't sort of um, form good relationships with colleagues, um, they feel out of place at times, um, not enjoying the work, not feeling that it's um, that they're making a valuable contribution. Maybe everybody else can see the contribution they're making, but they're feeling like it's sort of their work is subpar, they need to do better or improve the whole time. So just sort of understanding what, what are these things that are making them feel dissatisfied um, and then allow them to feel the hurt, the pain, all of those range of emotions because they are valid. Um, there's no sort of dismissiveness that ah, actually everybody at work thinks you're fine or your work is great. You, you, you probably would get a promotion. There's no dismissiveness of their experience. There's no minimizing it, that it's actually nothing. You listen to it because for them, it is something significant that's resulting in um, them coming into your office, right? Um, understanding it, allowing them to experience it. And already before any other intervention or any other thing that you could implement, um, that already is incredibly healing. So someone taking your experience seriously, they aren't trying to change your perspective immediately, That, but Oliver, this is how you should think about it. They're just taking your opinions and feelings seriously already. That makes you feel normal. It makes you feel listened to. It doesn't make you feel like you're strange or weird. Already that's so validating. Um, and then um, the process of reframing and assisting them to have a different perspective, that's a gradual process that isn't rushed. Um, and that's why some people can be in therapy for months, other people do just a few sessions and can, and can recover. But it's a process that's actually led by the person. They'll heal at their own pace. Yeah, there's no rush. To, you should be okay because you've been here for four months or you, you let them heal at their own pace. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, thanks so much for outlining that. And I think as you said that, I mean, I was thinking, um, because you touched on this point earlier, and I just want to come back to that point, which is, um, you could normally do this with a loved one as well. You know, a loved one could be supportive, and they could l listen to you. And, and maybe they won't be judgmental, you know, hopefully, they won't be judgmental and stuff like that. But why would someone seek out a, a professional, like a psychologist, um, rather than someone that just can hear them speak? Okay. Um, I guess also the, the fact that you're speaking to a stranger, right? So it's a person, person that um, is not directly involved in what's happening. So that might make you feel a lot more comfortable just to be free and expose a bit more. Secondly, sometimes the just the, the professional... Um, the professional aspect, the fact that you're speaking to a person that's qualified to assist, already there's an element of this person will know how to intervene with this problem. So yes, I could talk to a friend or a family member or my spouse, but they might give me an advice based on their experience and their perspective. Whereas this person that's trained and has a lot more of a broader understanding of the human experience will not be trying to force a specific um uh, uh, almost recipe for how I need to to heal. They'll be listening to me, trying to understand me, and offering um, a tailored solution according to me, 
and how, how I need to address my specific problem, right? So there's an element of trusting your, the, the person because of their um, level of skill and qualification, the, um, the distance of them not being someone in your personal life. Um, and also, I think although we do have, you can have supportive people around you, there is something about the, the, the skill, right? The active listening, the empathy, the, um, the therapy process that is different from um, a casual chat with a friend where you can get to vent and let off just what you're thinking and feeling. There is a, a, a big difference with a person that's actively listening to pick up on the subtle aspects Right? And the story they tell about you and to help you see you see yourself, right? And see your situation in a in a different way. Right? There is there isn't a difference with that. There's a level of skill with that as well. Mm, which yeah. you may not get, which you most likely may not get from a friend or spouse or whoever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I think um, it articulates what I would have thought, you know, it could be. And I think on that point, I mean, I, I think we were speaking to um, someone in the school setting and and we were just saying, you know, even teachers, you know, teachers see so many children coming through their classrooms every single year. And so they pick up these trends a lot more faster than you would as a parent or you as a loved one or a grandparent. And, and at least they can point out, oh, okay, that just doesn't seem normal, you know, the way, the way he's working in that particular problem, you know, based on the experience of everything else. And I put that same analogy with, with practice, with, with psychologists and, you know, therapists and healthcare professionals is they see so many people through their, um, you know, through their practice or through their working environment that, and I'm not saying everyone is just a number, but, you know, you're seeing the trends, you're seeing how it worked for other people and you said skill level and that I would put it in the same level as well. You know, that your loved one might not have that. I mean, they, they've, they played a right role in terms of being the support structure for you, but they would not be able to help mm -hmm. you probably in the same way. So I think mm -hmm. um, my, my thing with this is that, you know, if you want to get help, then, you know, obviously get help from the right people. And that's mm -hmm. where practitioners kind of play. I think the, I think the big part that um, your social network and your, your support system does help is particularly with the person that's experiencing depression or grief or um, any sort of life event, the practical assistance that they provide is huge. You know, when you are severely depressed and getting out of bed is too hard um, and you don't have the motivation to, to even take a shower or make something to eat, there's no appetite to eat or to engage. Um, you start ignoring um, calls from friends. Um, there's no interest in being outside um, or just engaging with the world. Someone that actually knocks on the door and checks on that person with a meal comes in and says, checks and actually asks, have you eaten today? Um, do you need me to bring anything? Um, if they're kids, should I pick them up today if you're not able to pick them up? That practical assistance is huge. Um, so family and friends can actually play a very huge role. There's so much that they can do for a person when they are experiencing depressive symptoms. Um, someone help, helping with a lot of practical stuff. So when you are depressed, um, 
cooking, um, getting errands done, going to get the groceries, picking up children, um, whatever it might be. All of those things feel so strenuous to get done. Someone else assisting with those practical things, making sure that there is food that's prepared. Um, whatever little errands there are, if there is someone that can um, spare the time to do that, that often is a very big help and boost, right? That's actually how a big way that we can feel supported by others is them just being there to assist with all of those practical things. Mm, yeah. yeah, I like that too. Yeah. Um, so precious. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time on depression and, and I think we tied it up at the beginning of the conversation in terms of where mm -hmm. that fits in around, you know, mood disorders and why there's a correlation between those. But is there anything, you know, around what we've been speaking about now that you would say over and above that around mood disorders in general? I know with mood disorders as well, I mean, as you pointed out, you know, bipolar is a topic on its own and I don't think we'd be doing it justice if we just put a blanket statement on it. But is there anything around depression and specifically the term mood disorders that you would kind of elaborate on? Or have we covered it? Um, I think we've covered quite a bit. We've covered quite a bit. Um, maybe the only other thing that I'd um, just add is a lot of people may not meet the criteria. So there's something called dysthymia, um, which is a persistent low mood over a two-year period, but the person's never meeting the clinical, um, the full clinical picture of depression. So this might be a person that um, they avoid social engagements. Um, maybe the weight loss is great, gradual or the weight gain is gradual and not intentional. Um, but there's, there's an aspect of um, that's observable to others that something's just a little bit off about them. And again, it might be in re relation to something specific that's happened, the loss of a loved one, and you can just tell that the person hasn't fully recovered, right? So they don't meet the full criteria for depression, but they are experiencing um, symptoms of depression for an extended period. So over two years. And this is actually also something which is common um, I think the percentage or the statistic around that is it might be just under seven percent. So with depression being around, you know, around between seven and fifteen, which is the highest, right? That's the most common psychiatric disorder. Um, dysthymia is actually also quite quite high, quite high. There are a lot of people that are going through life just not too satisfied with anything, um, but they're functioning. They're still making it to work on time. They're still, um, they're still getting stuff done, um, but there's just no excitement. They're not planning a little getaway or holiday. They're not um, excited for much, right? Um, another interesting aspect is this often happens with older persons, the elderly, so over 65, um, where they will have a lot of these symptoms, but it's underdiagnosed by a lot of clinicians because we sort of think it's normal to be a bit depressed in older age um, because they've gone through all the big, exciting things already. Um, and it's it's so it's underdiagnosed in, in the elderly, but it, it is a condition that usually is there around. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 quite common and prevalent, um, but it might be, I guess, 
we could call it ageism, where it's just not treated the same way. And also it can happen in people that are not elderly, but just it's un- not recognized and they just keep going through life. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. mentioning that. Um, I always want to mention that because we, we're currently in the UK and, um, you know, like we, uh, and our neighbors are like in the eighties. There's something about the South African context though, that I think when people get to a certain age, you know, like we, <laughs> I don't know, it's, you know, we get a lot more, um, I would say, yeah, it's almost like it's over and it's actually not, you know, yeah, because we live longer now, you know, we live into our nineties, you know, if you obviously have a good enough life and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it doesn't end when you retire. I think that's, that's the one thing it's I wanted I want to say, and I don't know if it's yeah. a cultural thing. It's definitely a cultural thing with us, but it's like, once you retire, you know, like it's almost like it's over now <laughs> and it's actually not, mm-hmm. you know, you still have so many good years, you know, especially if you're healthy still. Um, you know, to, to live life. And I think people, it's, and that's why, I mean, I, I'm really privileged, you know, to be able to speak to people like yourself, Precious, is because just spreading that awareness that it's not over, you know, it's, you know, you can find people like yourself and get through yeah. that, whatever you're feeling right now, you know, that, that feeling that you don't have a job, so you're feeling worthless or whatever that is, you know, you don't mm-hmm. have any purpose in life, but you need to find that because it's not normal to, to have that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. You're hitting the nail on the head. Um, probably because of post-retirement, maybe finding a sense of purpose and meaning meaning becomes, um, everyone sort of has to do that, right? After you you aren't a professional anymore, who are you beyond that, right? When, you're, when you're, you've raised your children and they're out of the home, and they aren't dependent on you or they aren't um, coming home as regularly. Um, they, they still, everybody has to sort of find a sense of meaning for themselves in that stage. Um, and life still is very much worthwhile. Um, a lot of people use their later years to um, often give back. So not necessarily financially, but they'll be spending time. So even with grandchildren, that's a big way that grandparents give back and feel that they are almost reinvesting their knowledge and um, themselves into something else. Um, yeah, there's an actual, there's a stage, there's a life stage. Ugh, I'm forgetting it, but there's a theory. Um, Eric Erickson has, has a really good um, theory on the stages of life that we go through. Um, and um, is it generative? I think it might be generativity versus stagnation. It might be. I'm not too yeah, Don't don't quote me on that. But that might be. Um, that might be just the last stage. So, um, in terms of our life development and the emotional thing, the emotional almost conflict that a person can have in, at that stage is. How do you continue to generate something, make something, contribute in, in a significant way versus this fighting this feeling of being stagnant, right? So that's actually, um, according, according to Erickson, that's a worldwide phenomenon. No matter who you are, no matter the cultural background, at that age, that's the emotional thing that you're wrestling with. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, 
We didn't cover this one, and we touched on the baby one. Uh, but, you know, when I did the research for the show, depression and pregnancy came up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any specific thoughts around that uh, in terms of why people would be so interested in something like that? Absolutely. So um, depression, okay, so depression is actually more common in, in women than in men. I think it's the percentages, um, 50% more uh, depressed persons that we see it's yeah 50 percent more likely to happen in females and in men sorry um and the reasons for that might be because of hormonal and uh, uh, uh for hormonal reasons it might be um after childbirth um specific psychosocial stresses placed on women um with with being a mother um with you often being in a caregiving role um with peripartum onset of depression, what we look at is that it should generally occur. Okay, with peripartum, it's diagnosable after four weeks of post giving birth, right? But it could start any time before that as well, even before giving birth, right? So, um, and that again depends on a female's ex- the, the mother's experience of being pregnant. Right. And um, I think we often think of it as being um, a joyous time where mom's expecting there's um, there's a lot of positive association with that. But it could actually be a different experience for some that being pregnant, not only the physical changes in the body, but all of the aspects around becoming a mother and um, having an, a, a child who's fully dependent on you, your capability to take care of that child, right? Any sort of issues with your own, the parenting you received may be triggered when a person becomes a, is beca- yeah, becomes a parent or during pregnancy. If your childhood was traumatic, if your mother was um if your mother passed away, um, any sort of issues you had with with um, in your childhood and with your parents will be re-triggered by a pregnancy and when your child arrives. So the emotional experience is not always incredibly positive for everybody, right? Um, and then, of course, there are all the physiological changes that could um, result in, um, which are a huge adjustment, a huge adjustment for um in a female's body, and also for her partner or spouse, um, all of the preparation um, and their again their own potentially unresolved um, emotional stuff around their parents and becoming a parent can reemerge um, when their child is born. So there's a whole lot to that that can result in a depressive feeling. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really one of those things, like I was saying, you know, uh, I wish, well, not I, but I mean, you know, I think people wish they knew, you know, before, you know, embarking on something like that as well, is knowing mm-hmm. that it's going to come up, you know, knowing that, you know, your body's going to change, knowing that these are possible feelings that you're going to go through. Um, because like you said, you know, everyone's like, so, you know, overjoyed in that moment. And I think when you're mm-hmm. feeling, I mean, when I say you, I mean, the, you know, the, the lady, uh, or the mum, yeah, when you're not feeling that, it must be really, really disheartening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. We do have to start wrapping up soon. Um, I do want to ask you as well, um, are there any books or resources or applications that you found that have been absolutely amazing that, you know, that you've recommended or you, you recommend to people actually, they want to, even if they listen to this and they said, I really like what Precious said, uh, but I would like to find out more. Um, is there anything that you would recommend to them? Um, Oliver, you know, I don't have a whole a long list um, of, of specific resources that I direct people to. Um, but maybe just some of the, the oh, one good book, one really good book, which I, I, I well, when I do recommend a book, um, it's often The Gift of Therapy by Irvin Yalom. So that's, it's written by a psychiatrist who I alluded to him a bit earlier. Um, but he's just making the experience of being in therapy and the experience of being human a little bit more understandable. Um, so he speaks about himself as a clinician and then also gives anecdotal stories about um, patients he's worked with and how they've personally impacted on him, right? Um, so through sharing those stories, it gives a really good sense of what's healing um, in the healing process of all the elements that really do um, help in, in, one, in a person getting better, right? So the book is just a really good, and it's an easy read. It's not too clinical or there's not a lot of terminology in it. And it also gives a really good perspective for someone from the, um, for, the for, for, for a lay person of what it's like as a clinician to work with people, that we see them all as unique individuals and we're trying to get into, um, into their world as, as gently as possible without them feeling that we're um, too curious. We're trying to find out information so we can give them another a label of having a disorder, right? It gives them a good sense of, as a clinician, what it's like when you meet a person and you get to know them and how sensitively, you know, how they might even bring up your own stuff, right? Because we're not robots. We also go through things. Um, and sometimes you're working through that very same thing that you're helping another person with. Um, so it just gives a really good perspective of what therapy is and how it helps. Mm. So that's called Gift of Therapy by um, Yalom. Okay. Cool. Thanks for mentioning that. We will add that to the notes as well. And um, yeah, and and I think that my follow up on that question would be, um, obviously, we try to do the best we can, you know, with the outline. And um, I, actually, on the last one, I, I do want to mention, and, and this is just more for the people that are more academically inclined, or, you know, maybe other therapists as well. Obviously, the research papers are probably there. You know, like I think the best source is always like, you know, go look at some of the research that's happening, you know, around depression and mood disorders. I think that's always a good, uh, but I think not many people are kind of that inclined. <laughs> so mm -hmm. no one's going to go through the research papers. Um, but my follow-up, uh, Precious, uh, in terms of wrapping up is obviously we try to do the best we can in terms of the topic. And, and these are really complicated topics. Um, and, you know, there's no way we're going to cover it in an hour, not even by a long shot. But um, do you think that there's anything I should have asked you that I didn't around the topic of depression and mood disorders that you, you probably think would, um, you know, would be useful to say? Um, we qu covered quite a bit. I think you did mention COVID and somehow in my answering, maybe I didn't quite get to that. 
Um, you did mention COVID and just um, how that's just affected all of us. Um, maybe one thing that I can say about COVID is I think you're right. We are still all recovering from a, a bit of a hangover or still adjusting after being locked down for so long. Um, but, you know, I think a big part of what we don't realize is we we actually all went through a big, collectively experienced a, a traumatic event um, where it was incredibly scary. We'd, we were encouraged to stay home and all the news sources and information we were being fed was about death, right? Death and how how dangerous it is to be around others, right? That we need to stay as far as where as possible, um, sanitize and make sure we don't get contaminated. Um, there was so much anxiety that we were all experiencing um, collectively. But again, we all sort of just continued with life. Apologies for that. Apologies for that. Um, we all sort of just continued with life as best as we could without um, without sufficiently processing what we went through, right? It's scary to think of, to hear of just people dying every day across the globe in, in large numbers, um, being afraid to touch surfaces or get too close to people because you might, that would make you vulnerable to becoming, yeah, you could, might become exposed. Um, not being too certain around when this would end, all the uncertainty around it, with the different stages, going back up to a diff, to a more uh, more restrictions, and then finally we can go back down, and then it goes up again. All of that uncertainty regarding what was happening um, globally also was incre is, is incredibly traumatic when you're not too sure exactly how this will end. Right. Um, and then, of course, losing loved ones. A lot of people lost family members um, and the way in which it impacted the grief, the usual sort of traditions and practice, practices, sorry, around mourning, uh, not being able to go into hospital and see, see your loved one, have a final conversation with them. Um, not being able to view view them in their in their coffin, right? Because they they um, most most bodies were wrapped up in plastic, and there were strict um, measures around how we how the bodies were handled and um, how the funeral how funeral funeral proceedings could take place. So I think a lot of people experienced pain, which almost be, became because everybody's going through it. We we just continue we just sort of deal with it and we're fine but it's actually um a very traumatic thing it leaves a wound it leaves an emotional wound because life is um it, it was drastically altered for so many of us um and what happened is we just got back to life as soon as we could um without really talking about how scary that actually was yeah yeah, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And I just let you, you know, run through that whole thought practice, but you got it perfectly right. And I think uh, I think practitioners like yourself are obviously dealing with the consequences of that. 
you know, the disenfranchised grief, you know, the lack of mourning around that process. Um, mm. you know, um, I mean, I'm just thinking even vaccinations, you know, vaccinations were stressful on, on two fronts. One is like, if you didn't get the vaccination when you thought you should be getting it, uh, the fact that you had to take a vaccination and you probably didn't want to take it, um, the fact that you didn't know what was happening with it, all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many aspects to that that, I mean, it probably merits another episode or so. But um, thanks for mentioning that. Um, we do have to wrap up now, but thanks so much for your okay. time. Thanks for all of your insights. I mean, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and uh, thanks for doing the work that you do. Thank you, Oliver. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode. Music